0: There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national, and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us.
1: Hey, good morning and welcome to 3CR. You're listening to Greenland Radio with ah. Zane and Jacob.
2: Yeah. Um, so we have a pretty um, packed program today. Um, so... As I made the announcement on Facebook, we're going to be having um, two guests... um to talk about different kind of local campaigns that are happening. Um, we're going to be speaking to Mahia Mohammed, um, who is a resident from a Flemington housing estate that's um, facing kind of eviction because it's part of the 12 public housing estates that's going to be sold off by the Victorian state government. Uh, and then we have Lorene um, from Victoria Street Drug Solutions um, about this campaign for a safe ejecting room in Richmond. Um, but for, um, before we move on, I would like to acknowledge, um, that, you know, freeCR cr has been broadcast to you, um, from, you know, uh, I'd like, to, um, to the Wondry land of the Kulin nation. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that it's, you know, always was and always will be Aboriginal land and that, you know, sovereignty has never been ceded. Indeed. Um, so, um... Usually at the start of the program, we talk about some headline news, um, kind of like, you know, what's sort of the kind of big main issues kind of happened in the recent time. Now, there's just been a recent decision by the government, um, federal government, in sort of like the continued kind of trend of cruelty towards refugees. Um, The federal government has made this recent decision to cut welfare from a number of refugees who are already living in Australia mm. um, and basically um, what 's happened in response is you know a lot of church groups um, charities have are kind of trying to organize to do their best to support these refugees because it 's basically you know completely cruel um, and you know but it 's also not surprising, considering you know what the federal government the government 's already doing to refugees on a daily basis through mandatory detention. Um, so there'll be there is going to be some action in response to it. There's going to be a protest organised by Refugee Action Collective tomorrow at 12 p.m. at the um, Melbourne Parliament House. Mm. And I've got a media release here from the
1: ACTU, and says, "Let them stay." Following statement is from um, ACTU President Jed Carney and says the ACTU condemns the Turnbull government's cruel and weak decision to attack vulnerable families living in Australia by cutting their income and threatening to deport them back to offshore detention camps. The ACTU opposes this awful distraction from a heartless government and demands the attack stop immediately. So The 400 people were evacuated from Australia's offshore detention camps for critical reasons. Some women were pregnant. Other men, women and children were evacuated because they were too sick to stay in the camps. Um, And their babies have been born in Australia and there are children and families from this group living across the Australian community. They are our schoolmates, teammates and neighbours. If they can remain in Australia and be allowed to work, they could be your teacher, your doctor or your colleague. This is a callous, cynical and cruel decision. We must let them stay. It deserves scorn and condemnation. It will be resisted. This decision is designed to take attention away from the Turnbull government's self-inflicted wounds and declining popularity. Australians fought for these people to be allowed to stay in Australia before, and the ACTU stands ready to fight for them again.
2: Um, so that that's um, so yeah. If you're getting angry about that, definitely encourage you to attend the protest. Um, there's also, I think, um, a lot of the the charity kind of like NGO kind of refugee advocacy organisations are also trying to do a lot of work um, to you know ensure the well being of these um, asylum seekers whose welfare has been cut. Mm. Um now the other kind of news um story I want to talk about is um it's a bit of a interesting one. Um it's a bit kind of comes off the brand, but the age just recently reported on this. Um but apparently there's um there's a bit of a group of vigilantes going around um the top end of town um in you know um you know pu- um and are tearing down undemocratic tram ads. Mm. So they like, there's a group of people in Hyrie, is that they, you know, getting trams to stop and and then removing the, you know, advertising from the trams. You know, it's something I can I can get behind because you know we're constantly, you know, public transport shouldn't have corporate advertising all over it. Mm. Especially, um, it's undemocratic because you know basically you have to it costs thousands or hundreds of dollars to get to get an ad. Like that onto um, public transport and it's just literally plastered everywhere or over the train stations and the trams, so I kind of like I poured these um, regionalities and actually interesting enough, there hasn't um in the article it kind of said that the some of the sort of bureaucrats in the public transport um, kind of area really were kind of declined to comment to the media <laughs> mm. no it didn't really bring up any kind of condom- can- condemnation of these um these people
1: yeah um we're a are- grew up in Newcastle, there's been periodically like big wars on graffiti, and one of the books that I was reading, giving some background on graffiti culture, it sort of said um, public public assets, public spaces, public transport, uh, it should be sort of okay for people to personalise them, Uh, much like you would put bumper stickers on your car it shouldn't be so weird that people would want to personalise public spaces by adding art to them. Mm. Uh, it's, but uh, as we see, the uh, any graffiti is, you know, well, Melbourne's a bit better. There's a lot of graffiti here, obviously, in laneways and stuff. But if you were to go to a public, uh, like to a train station or if there was graffiti on a train, that would usually be painted over and got rid of straight away because we can't have random plebs personalising stuff, adding their own little piece of artwork to it, Uh, yet with corporate sponsorship, that seems to be fair game. So random workers can't personalise this thing with their artwork, but corporations can... Buy that space and plaster it with ads mm. that everyone is forced
2: to see. Yeah. And what's, um, especially in the context of Victoria, what I also find um, disturbing is on public transport, you literally see, you know, advertisements to join the army or to mm. join the police force.
1: Really offensive stuff. It's really right wing kind of come and join the imperialist yeah, game it's clearly it's like you know it's
2: clearly um, pushing a political agenda that you know participants on the public tra- of public transport had basically no say or mm. same with the workers we had absolutely no say on whether these advertisements should be um displayed on on our pub on public transport yet somehow did, that's that's the reality of it what 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 is it am um, actually saying mm. Which raises an interesting point. After
1: the revolution, what are we going to do with public transport? Yeah. Put it in public
2: hands. Yeah, but in terms of images to be displayed on it. Well, it's just, it'll be up to the people, kind of decide what they want to do with it. They can yeah. personalise it any way they want. You're going to have art competitions.
1: This month, we're going to let RMIT decorate the city's trams. Mm. Next month, the workers at Workplace
2: X. Yeah. Yeah, Um, and now the other thing, and this is probably what's on everyone's mind, is um, the marriage equality campaign. Mm. Um, So, um, for listeners' information, um, the postal surveys are going to be going out on September the 12th. Um, So, you should, within probably next week or the week after next, you should receive your surveys in the mail. Um, Now, what's... um, there's got a, there's a lot of campaign getting off the ground um, for the yes campaign especially with local groups and local actions getting off the ground what has been interesting um has there there has been a lot of um suburban or like outer country kind of rallies being called. So, there's a rally that was called in Pakenham, for example, in the far east of Melbourne, but there's also going to be a rally in Sale, which has sunk even further east. Um, And then, apparently, I've heard there's going to be rallies um, in Bendigo and Madura in support of marriage equality. Yeah. So, lots of different activities happening there. Now, the No campaign, on the other hand, has been funny. Mm. I mean, they released their first 30-second ad, and, um, yeah, basically summarizing the sharma words possible it's a, kind of like a dumpster fire of reactionary garbage yeah basically <laughs> um but they sort of like they focused on i think the focus was on safe schools but of course i support you know we obviously support safe schools but nothing really about marriage quality it was a bit a weird and bizarre ad yeah well, it's interesting isn't it it's like they
1: they're almost tacitly admitting that they've lost the equal marriage campaign, Yep. and they're using the
2: opportunity to attack safe schools. Mm. But I think what's interesting is, and this shows how weak the no campaign is, um, in light of the mass support that marriage equality has. Their kind of slogan is "You can say no," <laughs> <laughs> like that's uh, like it's the most kind of negative kind of statement saying "You can say no." Mm. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah powerful words people <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, it's like but it's almost implying that the no vote is actually going to be minority um, mm. there's there's no real confidence in that no, they, it indicates actually a lack of confidence that they're going to get it's mm. going to get receive any support. And that lack of confidence is well placed
1: because poll after poll has shown that a big majority of Australians do in fact support mm.
2: equal marriage. Um, was- I've, I've read this on social media, but um, someone kind of analysed this, uh, someone I have on Facebook kind of, compared this to um, how the Liberals responded to the Whitlam campaign. So the Whitlam campaign had this slogan, It's time. Mm. And then the best that the Liberals could get up in response is... Not yet. <laughs> mm. So that that it's kind of an a, a example of the kind of fantastic momentum that you know the marriage equality campaign you know has achieved, and it's like I think it's quite you know good to reflect you know that it wasn't really always like this. Um, there was actually a time where you know marriage equality was almost like a minority issue. Oh, uh, very much so. And I,
1: uh, I remember back in the day when when equal marriage campaigners were talking about how they had taken this to the manage the organising committee of the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras in Sydney, and they wouldn't have a bar of it. They didn't want to be involved with the equal marriage campaign because it was too, too fringe and too controversial. Mm. Uh, of course, over the years that changed big time, and equal marriage became a major focus of the Mardi Gras. But mm-hmm. yeah, this very much started out as a very outlier kind of fringe campaign, and through uh, ongoing mobilisation, it was built into a very popular mass campaign, Mm. and I think that that's very significant, and I actually attracted a bit of uh, a set of cat amongst the pigeons uh, on on my social media friends list this week, because I said that the climate movement has lessons to learn from the Equal Marriage campaign, And I was actually surprised to find that some of my friends and some other people on, on another friend's page who are involved in climate work, they like, immediately defensively jumped to say, you know, oh, no, 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 you can't compare that. It's not, that's not true. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? Like, why, why are some climate activists so defensive about this? Like, mm-hmm. clearly the Equal Marriage campaign, it's gone for a very long time. It's repeatedly mobilise people in the streets and that's been actually how the campaign has Mm. built itself and made itself stronger is by mobilising in the streets it builds people's confidence more people want to get involved and it's got to the stage where they're going to win Mm. and uh, there has not been there's been really good state and local based climate and fossil fuel campaigns over that same period over the last 10 or 12 years Um, but there has not been a climate or fossil fuel campaign which sort of set the target and went. We are going to keep hammering this mm-hmm. until we win. Um, so, yeah, I think there's big lessons to be learned from the equal marriage campaign. It's very
2: impressive. Mm. Yeah, I think um, maybe for the client movement, um, you know, there hasn't. There needs to clearly be some mobilisations around a particular. van. I'm kind of just imagining something like. You no know, it would be good if we could see continued mobilizations around something like you know hundred percent renewables or some kind of en- demand political demand around renewable energies, but it also they needs there needs to be kind of like you know groups sort of need to get behind it they need to be kind of united actually it because it's all really the one of the significant things about the equal marriage campaign is that it's you know it's an example of you know lots of di- people and different groups coming together over 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 a single demand mm.
1: Yeah, that's it. And with the climate and fossil fuel movement, there's been a lot of uh, more localised state or or city-based campaigns, and a lot of them have been very strong. There's been the recent Repower Port Augusta victory, the Bentley blockade. uh, In Fullerton Cove in Newcastle and in Wollongong, they've stopped coal seam gas. Uh, The Stop Adani campaign hasn't won yet and and that is going to be a big victory if they are able to stop that mine, but they have been able to uh, get the big four banks to commit to not funding the project. So there's certainly been victories in the climate movement, and there's been strong campaigns. But yeah, as you say, there hasn't been some sort of um, overarching umbrella campaign that once or twice a year, everyone around Australia gets out on the streets and says, come on, Climate change, big picture. We need to get rid of fossil fuels and move to 100% renewables. Get onto it, government. You're dragging your feet. You're puppets of the fossil fuel industry. It's not cool, and we will keep rubbing your face in the dirt until you
2: do something about this. Mm. Uh, maybe we can play a bit of an announcement, and then we can move on to another some more news. Indeed, you do.
0: The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence Keep Australia Out of US Wars Amidst
2: an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases,
0: drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter.
1: Uh, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR with Jacob and Zane. Yeah. I was going to play a song, but uh, having some technical issues, I'll play
2: that in a minute. All right. Um, so maybe um, this is a um, for the, uh, this is a story I kind of want to bring up. This is an article um, I'm going to go refer to a bit of an article in Green Left Weekly that's written by Nicholas James. Um, it's basically in regarding this whole mobster lobster gate um, in relation to. The new Liberal leader, who's I think he's running for pre selection at this point, or he's already can or has been selected as the new Liberal Premier Leader um, ahead of the state election coming up. Um, And he is going to be, he is the Victoria opposition leader, Matthew Guy. Um, He, you kind of see, probably see his posters um, all around Melbourne. Although I've noticed that a lot of them have been graffiti over, which I think is good uh, um, so and um he he um he is kind of campaign on this slogan of I think it goes like safer communities, safer streets, some kind of like you know this kind of right wing kind of agenda of protecting us um from crime. Mm-hmm. However, there's a bit of irony in that, and this is what I thought you were going to say he's campaigning on the slogan of "I am not a crook." Yeah, well, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, here's the here's a funny thing. So he's he's campaigning on this kind of agenda, this kind of law and order agenda of yeah. you know safer communities, you know being tough on crime. Yet, this is um, what's interesting is um, you know Fairfax and ABC have kind of revealed he had a bit of a dinner with um, a well known. Like kind of prominent monster, um, mobster, mm-hmm. not a monster, but mobster. You're gonna say he had dinner with a lobster? <laughs> well, yeah, he had a lobster dinner, <laughs> an expensive lobster dinner, um, with um, because he he sought a donation, as Nicholas writes here, from a Liberal supporter, Frank Lamentini and his cousin, who's the alleged Melbourne ma- Melbourne boss, mafia boss, um, Tony Maff Madduffy, Um and of course. The, there was kind of talk at this meeting of like you know huge donations, et cetera, so yeah, basically, this is basically what um what is happening here is there's this hypocrisy of Matthew guy going on about being tough on crime, yet he's having dinner with people who are alleged to be mobsters mm. um and of course you know there's it's he the 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 art the thing is is like you know. Um, for Matthew Guy, is as Nicholas writes here, Guy is aware that Mafaduri is hot enough that in June, Victoria Police enforced a ban on this alleged mobster um, entering casinos. And of course, when when the story broke uh, and when the you know his Matthew Guy's kind of tough on crime posters appeared around Melbourne. Guy, Matthew Guy denied knowingly meeting underworld figures. Guy thought he um he thought that he was meeting an unknown cousin Tony of liberal, long time liberal supporter Owen. But of course, this sounds like he's just trying to save face from the fact that he has been seen and has been reported to by you know the mainstream media that he's had just had a, a meeting with a mobster. Mm. Um and now one of the um I probably won't go into full detail about it but that's kind of the gist of the article but then Nicholas James and if you can you can refer more at greenleft.org.eu kind of goes on to speak about kind of like the long term connections um that you know mafia um bosses and liberal party politicians have had um and of course one of one of the things that kind of be said is that you know a lot of in, in kind of politics, you know, the Liberal Party tends to have a lot of dealings with, you know, property developers. Mm. And, of course, a lot of these, it's quite clear that a lot of these property developers also have links to organised crime, etc. And, of course, as, um, you know, it's it's kind of like, this is kind of like a net, it kind of just shows really what the nature of the Liberal Party is. Um, I mean, they always go on, I mean, the Liberal, you know the right wing kind of like sometimes like to go on about these kind of alleged um un- about union fuggery and and so on um but you know they they the the company they keep is you know what can you say about it
1: <laughs> yeah
2: shady shady thoughts. yeah and yeah it's
1: uh if it's not uh alleged mobsters it's uh like happened up where I'm sort of from in Newcastle. Um, This uh, property developer, Jeff McCloy, handing over brown paper bags of cash in the lead-up to the uh, state elections, Uh, you know, giving giving Liberal politicians uh, or candidates $10,000 cash in a brown paper bag, and here, use that on your campaign. Yeah. So, yeah, whether it's... um, whether it's mobsters or whether it's taking uh, illegal donations from uh, from property developers, it's uh, it's unsavoury behaviour and uh, yeah, big double standards as you uh, as you point out. Alrighty, yeah, it is is 7:28 and you're listening to 3CR. This is Greenleaf Radio and that was Odette uh, with Watch Me Read You. Mm, that was pretty good. I quite like that song,
2: yeah, so now I think it got um then they kind of want to talk about some international news. Um basically what's happening in the United States. Um, listeners are probably following what's happening in Houston, Texas. Um, there has been uh there, there was basic there's another there's been a hur- there was a hurricane. Um, um and you know, it's led to a lot of buildings, um and flooding um in Houston, Texas. Um now this is kind of like I'm going to kind of like refer to an article here by Naomi Klein. And just to give a bit of background, Naomi Klein wrote quite a lot about, you know, the responses of kind of neoliberal governments um, in response to disasters, such as Hurricane, um, Hurricane Katrina. Um, and what you always kind of see is this this kind of, you kind of see this kind of political response um, that doesn't actually Fundamentally address, you know, the human needs of the kind of victims of this disaster. And Naomi Klein makes this argument in this um, article that, you know, Harvey didn't come out of the blue and it's really, it's time to actually talk about climate change, um, especially the inaction of, especially the United States government to address it. Because, Mm. you know, what these kind of disasters show is, um, you know, there's always this report in the media about, you know, how always, no, we... No one could have predicted this could have happened or why did no one predict this? but actually <laughs> the fact is we did we scientists have been going have on been screaming from the rooftops for years that this is this this kind of these are kind of extreme weather re- more re- extreme re- events. weather events more severe and more often and yet just like um the thing that you know re- a bit of a that really you know grinds me around um, that what 's happening in hurricane and um, what 's happening in um, harvey is. Basically, um, the media is always keen to uh, attack, you know, the kind of chaos of the kind of working people. Like, you know, oh, yes, there's African-Americans looting the, looting the streets, mm. etc. Inconceivable that in the midst of a flood
1: with no electricity and no running water and anything, people actually still want to eat food. Yes. And the shops aren't open because there's been a huge flood. So the only way to get food is looting. Yeah, it's amazing. And, it's there's, and there's also
2: the kind of racism that kind of pops up in these natural disasters. Like, for example, when it's a when it's a white person who's you know grabbing looting food, um, it's actually I don't know what the word they term they use, but they don't use looting. But when it's a a black African American, person, suddenly it's a group mm. of African Americans looting. Like, you, um, but also kind of like there's also and Norman Klein also mentions you know there's also the um, these disasters are made worse by the fact that there is an underfunding of social services, mm. but increased funding for police forces. And the police, what the police, um, their role into like these disasters is always actually quite appalling. In fact, there's apparently around um, Harvey, they're trying to, you know, you know, do um, form borders to actually prevent people from evacuating. Um, and then there's also another thing that's um, happening is, you know, um, one of the more interesting things is, you know, what happens after people have lost their homes? Um, and in Hurricane Katrina, um, we're not quite sure what's going to be happening in Harvey, but for a lot of people that lost their homes, they weren't able to go back was basically those houses, the, the land there basically got bought up by private developers who just went and... Took advantage of the situa- um of the situation or the chaos of the situation to prop up their own profits and you know form even more surrogation. Um, I remember, I remember when this is kind of like when I was a bit less political. Um, there was kind of a lot of controversy um, around the statements that around Hurricane Katrina when that Kanye West said that you know George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. But in the context of the Hurricane Katrina events that happened quite tragically years ago, that is actually what what has actually happened. It was a just uh, a, a systematic kind of disregard for, for, you know, the African-Americans who were affected by that flood. Mm. And, um, and of course, as Nery Klein writes here in this article in reference to uh, um, Harvey, it's almost like a form, you know, the, the policies that are implemented by the right-wing governments, especially by the Trump administration, are almost like a form of, client apartheid, and she quotes here: "We saw after Hurricane Katrina when Republicans wasted no time pushing for a fully privatized school system, weakening labor and tax law, increasing oil and gas driven finding, and flinging the door open to merc- uh, mercenary companies like Blackwater, and of course, you know, people like Mark Pence. She um, writes here were, um, were you know, was a key architect in this kind of highly." Cynical project, and now she kind of states here that we can expect should expect nothing less in Tarvi's wake. Now that he and Trump at the at the wheel,
1: mm. yeah. And it was interesting. The uh, we're talking about this on the way this morning. There's that that right wing Pentecostal megachurch which uh, refused to open its doors as a sort of um, a place of shelter during and, and in the aftermath of the floods. Um, so that's kind of typical of this same yeah. attitude. I think another,
2: another thing to develop that story, I'm pretty sure I heard that um, that particular mega church was actually pressured, though, on the other hand, by through a bit of a social media storm. All oh, right. Um, to basically, and I think they have since, you know. They've opened their doors. Opened their doors. But of course, it actually took the will of people um, putting the pressure on them. They didn't do it mm. out of the goodness of their heart. So, yeah, that's. And I think, um, you know, someone was saying to me that. Um, Hurricane Harvey, you know, you know, while we've, we've kind of been criticising the response of governments, as we rightly should, um, because the response of the government has been absolutely appalling, as it always is in these natural disasters, The the response of everyday people has been... Who are in the flood, you know, has just been kind of like amazing kind of expressions of human solidarity and compassion, you know, people looking out for each other mm. um, and so on. So, I think that's that's something to be applauded, but obviously the government response to it is, you know, just to kind of like, because Naomi Klein, since we're talking about Naomi Klein, Naomi Klein wrote this book, um, I think it was called The Shock Doctrine, mm. um, which really goes into detail about this whole... This whole term of disaster capitalism basically kind of making the point of how, you know, neoliberal economic policies can't actually, you know, don't actually solve, you, know, you can't actually deal with these disasters. Well, they actually do deal with them, but in a way that actually benefits the top end of town and not the people the most at the, the bottom. Mm. Um, so that yeah that's um that's sort of all on really on um to say really on hurricane on the those tragic events in ha- uh, Harvey um i have a friend who actually lives in texas and she posted a bit of a picture of um the outside and it's basically nothing but floods um you can't you can't, you can't even walk um, She basically just has to stay enclosed in into her home so yeah it's hopefully the good news is that she's alright so um but yeah it's definitely a very tragic event
1: mm. Alright, might just have a quick announcement and then kick on.
2: I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe, do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much.
1: Green Left Radio.
2: All right, um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on the 855 um, AM dial. Um, Now, the next article I kind of want to talk about is, um, this is a recent Green Left Weekly article in the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, It's about, um, and this will kind of be a good segue into our first interview that we'll be doing shortly. Um, This is about, you know, more than council votes for public housing in West Brunswick. Um, This is an article written by Julian Coppins and um, basically starts off here by talking about the Victoria Labor government's um, sort of titled public housing renewal program aims to sell a range of public um, housing estates across inner Melbourne in a series of kind of like, you know, public-private partnerships. Um, What these deals mean, as Julian writes here, is these deals will hand over large swaths of land um, owned by the Department of Housing to developers and allow the construction of high-rise apartment buildings. Um, The state government um, wants to remove planning controls over these developments from local councils by creating a special planning committee to oversee the development within the department. Um, and of course, what this means is, in return, the developers will replace the existing public housing stock with new units that will be taken out of the public sector and owned and managed by social or community organisations. So that's a bit of the background. And of course, the number of dwellings will increase, but only by around by two ten percent. But new social housing stock will be smaller apartments. Um, so, what this means is, like, a lot of the residents that are affected by this, um, especially residents who are living in Grand Place, which is a one of the um, estates being sold off by the developers, 'cause because I went to a public meeting um, that I read an article about in Greenleaf Weekly, which should be in next week's issue, um, that a lot of the, the this estate that's facing a sell-off, you know, a lot of the residents are quite concerned that, you know, they won't be able to get back because, you know, some of them are living in a three to four bedroom place, mm. um, and then the the new, their new dwelling might be two bedrooms, mm. um, and of course they might um, potentially be relocated to some other you know house pushed away to a f- further suburb. Um, but you know the other issue is the fact that you know um, this re this so-called public housing renewal isn't actually a public housing renewal because if it really was it would basically mean that there would be rebuilding and there would be more public housing um and there would improve like you know the the um cladding and or or the structure because um a lot of the demands do a lot of the residents do have particular demands of you know improving the quality of st- of quality of their current dwellings um but this is really just you know as um, kind of soup bowl, kind of te- it's basically just a handout t- um, to private developers. This so-called public housing. Renewal. So residents have been getting organised against this. Against this, and in the case of the Moreland Council, the Moreland Council um, kind of made, particularly made a motion that they voted um, to support. They only voted to support the redevelopment only if, if it was hundred percent public housing. Um, but, you know, the reality is this proposal plan is not actually 100% um, public housing in its current form. Um, mm. It's just basically just a way of, you know, redeveloping public housing and take, getting rid of it and putting some of it into social housing. And then, of course, some of it's going to go into pri- some of the dwellings are going to be private, being um, private, develop- private, that own, uh, own properties. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there is... Um, as I, as I kind of mentioned before, there is, you know, there's opposition starting to be developed um, around this with kind of residence groups from the different estates because there's at least 12 estates that are kind of being targeted for sell-off. Um, and in West Brunswick, Grand Place, um, at the public meeting on Wednesday, there was kind of a clear kind of message of um, residents vowing to resist the eviction. Um, a resident of the place you know coin on people you know people who live in the in the um, in the place to not sign the eviction forms to refuse to sign them um, and then there's going to be a residence group established to you know coordinate more further kind of resistance mm. Um and so that that's um that's basically where it's at now and then there's going to be a kind of rally I think um, potentially in maybe mid October um you know trying to attempt to bring all these kind of all the residents groups facing eviction um you know to you know again to be stand up against this sort of proposed redevelopment by the Victorian state government um, and you know demand you know public put the demand that you know we want public housing mm. yeah and it- I guess the underlying
1: assertion with this whole redevelopment and turning it over to quasi-private operations like social housing being run by I mean, Brotherhood of St Lawrence or these different kind of charitable organisations, the underlying assertion is that whatever existing stock of public housing we've got, that's it. There's those parcels of land that have got public housing on them now, and from now until the rest of time, those are the only parcels of land that the state government can ever own, and they're the only places we can ever build public housing, which is just ridiculous nonsense. They're building new train lines, they're buying up land, and they're, they're facilitating the process of building new train lines, why can't they build new public housing on new blocks of land? Or buy or compulsorily acquire some of the tens of thousands of unoccupied housing units in places like South Bank and turn them into public housing. Mm. So this notion that the only blocks of land that we've got to work with are the stuff that's already got public housing on them, it's just absolute rubbish. Mm. And it just covers this ongoing kind of 30 or 40 years um, policy of not investing in new public housing not happy Jan
2: Right. so um, we're going to get ready for our first interview Um, just a bit of a quick um, kind of news story Um, probably I just want to kind of put um, put a note out um, is um, this is a bit of a a traffic news story or a bit of a tragic news story for workers. Um, but basically um, listeners may have heard that um, the Murdoch University administration and management have basically, you know, um, they're in negotiations with the NTU, and they've basically um, pushed to basically abolish the enterprise um, bargain agreement um, between, you know, um, for Murdoch University staff. So basically that's kind of like um and um yeah so they 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 and you know the education minister has basically you know said that this is a great thing and you know we're hoping that other universities follow suit which is completely so stay tuned for the more details on the implications of what this means for the union movement already oh, okay so um, we, ha- I think we have our first interview on the line. We have Mahia Muhammad. Um, he is a resident from uh, the Flemington housing estate um, that is, you know, being targeted for sell-off by the Victoria state government, um, and is also being part of orga- um, organising residents to kind of, you know, take action and stand up for their rights. Um, so good, um, good morning, Mahia.
3: Good morning. Thanks for inviting me on the segment,
2: Jacob. Yeah, yeah, not a problem. I guess um, the first kind of question to ask is just to give a bit of background to listeners. Um, what is happening to the Flemington public? This sort of Flemington estate, the public housing estate in Flemington, and what are the? What is the government actually has? What is the government actually proposed?
3: Yeah, so um I'll, I'll try to kind of summarize it out um in, in about 2 minutes but um uh, the state government in um in late 2016 came up with a proposal to obviously um redevelop the Plenty estate um and the community was uh, making some noise um in the period before that um saying some of the buildings did need um some level of redevelopment um so the the government said uh, we're happy to um we're happy to redevelop that um the area um with the uh, condition that, obviously, um, a part of the a part of the estate um, is privatised, um, and so um, obviously part of the the strategy is that um, there's a 10% increase um, in social housing um, in the Flemington. In the case of Flemington, that's going to be about 20 20 additional social housing, um, which is um, yeah different to public housing, um, and uh, an, an addition or an increase of about 820 private dwellings. So that's going to be quite a, yeah, quite a drastic increase, um, and quite a lot for the community to take in. Um, a lot of residents are going to be made to move out, and um, yeah, obviously it's not going to be, um, it's not, the community is not going to be the same, and um, a lot of people are unhappy about, unhappy about this. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's. Uh,
2: so what has kind of been the reaction of the res uh, of the people who are currently living here to this kind of proposal?
3: So uh, the state government is saying that they've uh, consulted and engaged with the community um, on a number of occasions. Unfortunately, I feel like it's just a tick box kind of thing where they um, they've consulted with um, maybe twenty or thirty people um, over two or three sessions. And um, the people that were consulted and engaged um, early in the project were not even um, residents of the Flemington Estate. Um, most of them weren't residents anyway. And so, um, you know, the community hasn't had much input into the project. And um, for a community, uh, for an area that houses about three, three and a half thousand people, um, most of them um, from migrant backgrounds, and um, yeah, just um, quite diverse ethnicities, um, it's it's quite problematic that uh, state government is trying to roll this project out um, without people having a fair say.
2: Yeah. So um, I've heard, um, especially when I heard you speak at the public forum recently on Wednesday, um, that there has been an active kind of residence group kind of getting organised to kind of, I guess, resist this kind of redevelopment. And can you tell us more about this residence group that is being formed on the Flemington estate?
3: Correct, yeah. So as you said, um, uh, a number of residents from the local area um, have formed a small group, a a committee, um, and over a a number of meetings we've had um, over 100 people um, show up to both with Quite a quite a few concerns and it's it's quite clear that people are obviously aren't in support of the proposal um, but in saying that it's also that um, you know the, the state government obviously hasn't done a good job of um, of engaging with this with this group if um, you know we have hundreds of people showing up and saying you know I'm still not happy and I haven't had the opportunity to voice my concerns um, but yeah we are um, we are preparing for the submission um I guess the standing advisory committee, which you mentioned a little earlier on. And um, another challenge is obviously the technical nature of the the process, and um, for people that that don't really have much planning experience, um, it's, it's quite a daunting experience um, uh, to try and navigate through the, the, this area.
2: Yeah. So, what um, do do have um, the residents come up with kind of any kind of particular demands um, in you know kind of like as a term to what the state government is proposing?
3: they do um it's just that it's hasn't um hasn't been fairly i suppose captured by the by the state government uh, there there are some requests for larger dwellings um some people are just saying that they want to they wish to remain in the area and um you know th- these are some requests that the government obviously won't be able to meet and um it's it's quite problematic that people don't really get a fair say in, in what happens to the, to their dwelling um, apart from that, it's obviously the open space that will be taken up by all these new apartments um, and dwellings hmm. for some residents. Um, you know, it's pretty much their backyard um, that's, that's now going to be um, that's now going to hold a, an, an additional maybe fifteen twenty story building. So, here
0: hmm.
1: um, I'm, I'm just interested. What has the government said will be the kind of interim uh, accommodation arrangements while? <laughs> this reconfiguring or whatever occurs? Have they offered yeah, so to provide housing?
4: Yeah,
3: the, I mean, the, the state government has obviously um, pledged that the, the process is gonna be as um, yeah as comfortable for residents as possible, and um, they, they will be um, housed temporarily elsewhere. Um, and during that period, they'll have the choice to either remain um, in that new um, place, uh, place of residence or in that dwelling, or um, they can return. Um, but again, that's, um, that hasn't really been formally communicated too well and um, a lot of times people aren't getting that in writing and so there's a lot of concern, um around whether that's uh, an actual guarantee or, or whether that's just um, the government saying, yeah, yeah, you can come back and then once they're out, um, yeah, they, they don't get to return. And um, there's obviously you know, a, a long-term strategy in the sense that um, the government is slowly trying to um, minimise yeah, the number of um, public housing dwellings, and um, that's visible in the technical terms they use, um, the, the new developments are going to produce social housing and not public housing, um, and so in the in the long run, it's, um, we're seeing a, a decrease of public housing across, across the state, and um, social housing is obviously quite different, um, so it, it is quite a concern for residents, um, mm. but yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, trying to kind of imagine what the residents kind of might be feeling, because basically it creates this, you know... Because you know, basically, um, as a like a advocate for public housing, um, I find you know one of the the benefits that public housing is it creates this kind of cohesiveness and this of this long term kind of community kind of feel, and it appears that people are kind of like you know, you know. There's so much uncertainty. People are not sure what their, where their children are going to go to school, um, what, what's going to happen to them while this redevelopment is happening and when the redevelopment actually happens, is their community going to be the same? Um, because you mentioned before um, that, they, um, that there's going to be private devel- dwellings built in conjunction with um, social housing as part of this redevelopment, which will obviously get probably attract a whole different demographic of people that were there, um, that weren't there previously.
3: That's correct. I mean, um, if we just look at um, other recent examples, um, Kensington and Carlton, for example, um, uh, you know the the outcome of those redevelopments hasn't really worked too well um, in favour of the um, the the residents who previously used to live there. Um, And in terms of coexistence, the two you know the two different um, groups don't really um, gel together too well, um, and that's just simply because you know the 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 whole principle behind. the, the, i suppose they the, the state government is calling it a salt and pepper mix but um the whole principle behind that is just um it doesn't work too well and, um because you know the, the existing community already has these sentiments ag- against um the 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 new kind of um the new residents and so um and, and the new residents kind of see the um existing residents as a as a kind of a problem um, and, and that whole narrative just kind of doesn't work too well in trying to create a good relationship between the two different communities. Um, apart from that, in the case of Flemington, um, the state government is proposing that there's going to be um, a, large of, um, a larger number of a larger number of public car parks, uh, private car park spaces compared to public car park spaces for um, private and public um, dwellings. So there's obviously some level of um, yeah, just um, a difference in, um, in in treatment already there and. Uh, that doesn't do anything to help um, yeah, improve relationships in any way. And uh, just the du- juxtaposition of private dwellings to public dwellings, does that mean that um, private re- uh, dwelling residents are now going to get um, better treatment in services and things like that? Um, you know, it, After maybe 10, 15, 20 years, do we see neglect in the public housing um, area or in the public housing dwellings um, compared to the private housing dwellings? And, uh, yeah, just uh, those basic kind of questions that... Um,
2: residents would like to know or find out about. I guess, um, just so, um, I have two more questions and this is sort of the second last question because yep. um, I've I'm, I remember asking you this um, when I t- spoke to you in person but I guess it would be great yep. to have um, your answer on the radio. Um, do you just quick, because of um, I used to work at this school called Debney Meadows Primary yep. um, which yep. is, yep. has nothing um, which the students are all um, yeah, residents of the program yep. 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 and so what, what what are the implications of what is going to happen to Debney Meadows Primary under this redevelopment? Um,
3: so, I, I mean, at this stage, it's not even clear to residents what's going to happen and even to parents of um, the children who attend the school. Um, and as I understand it, um, there, there is some level of... Uh, yeah, the, I mean, there's some talks between um, the local council, um, the Department of Education, and also the Department of Health and Human Services. But um, I think, you know, in the long term, the... the you know i I suppose you can go uh, one of uh, two ways they can either um resource the school a, a lot better and um kind of try to attract um both existing residents and um potentially the new community that's going to be moving into the area or it's um it's just going to be closed down um given the the fact that you know uh, only about hundred and fifty hundred and seventy children attend the school um and for for an inner city school that's quite a small number. And, um, yeah, that does obviously pose a a challenge to um, existing residents who have children that attend that school. Um, They'll be, you know, made to look at other other schools as an option. Um, And there's also, again, the whole um, perception that um, because it's a very highly kind of diverse community, um, the school does have... um, um, Most of the children from the school are from ethnic, back- different Afri- uh, ethnic backgrounds. And so um, the new community might not, um, for that reason, want to send their kids to the school. And um, again, we just don't want that tainted um, image to kind of be, um, yeah, just uh, be shared or be perceived by the, the, new, com- uh, the new community, pretty much.
2: Um, Zane, do you have a question or no? Okay, so the last question I kind of have, um, because we're running low on time now, is um, coming out of this, um, are there is there going to be sort of any action that residents are organising to kind of like you know stand against this kind of development? You know, sort of what's sort of happening and how can we also support the residents?
3: Definitely. Um. So. I guess, as you mentioned before um th- there will be um, a number of things happening there's the the protest um or the rally happening in about a month's time so um yeah just uh, just over four or five weeks um in mid october and that's going to be happening at um at flemington um but for the Flemington residents at the moment um we are preparing a workshop for residents who are going to be speaking at the um the public hearing against the standing advisory committee um and that's um just one of the things i suppose in the in the meantime that we're kind of Focusing on um, to prepare residents um, and help them have a have a voice and a say in in what happens. Um, more long term strategies are kind of mobilising the different estate groups and um, yeah, coming up with more formal um, or creating more formal opposition, um, whether that be through petitions, submissions. Um, as I understand it, there's a public inquiry going through Parliament at the moment, um, uh, looking into the, the the public housing redevelopment. Um, Yeah, proposals. So um, I guess uh, one other option would be that, um, you know, the different resident groups either take it to parliament as well um, um, and just make some more noise. Um, And I think one of the reasons the state government is able to roll out this project so quickly is because there's a a lack of knowledge about this um, from the wider society. And so um, it would be good to kind of raise awareness, um, uh, you know, just uh, across the state, whether through media um, or through just, um, you know, um, activating... through different communities just um, making some more noise and getting people on board. Um, I think there would be a lot more resistance and a lot more support from uh, the wider community um, in doing that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, thank. Um, that's that's very. That sounds all great. Um, thank you very much. Um, here. Um, it was. Um, great having you having the program and. Um, you know, getting a bit of a, a, a different perspective because this is one of the issues that we've been consistently covering on our program for quite a while, and it's really great to kind of hear from someone who's kind of on the ground there.
1: Yeah. Probably yep. one other thing too is if there are any other residents listening, uh, how can they get involved with the residents uh, action group?
3: Um. So we do have a, a, a Facebook page, um, and I know there's also. Um, Another Facebook page by a similar organizations like Friends of Public Housing. We have one called Flemington State Residence Committee. Um, and, um, if you type that in Google, we should, um, find it. But it's, um, yeah, definitely, um, you know, just typing in public housing or Friends of Public Housing on, on Google, um, will show you a number of advocacy groups, um, in support of, um, public housing residents. So, um, yeah, there are a number of ways, but, um, yeah, definitely we are making some noise. So, um, even contacting um, the Flemington Community Centre and um inquiring um they should be able to put you in touch with the right people. Yeah,
1: that sounds great. We could awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me on this. the show. All oh, right, no worries. Yep, cheers, Mahir. Have a good one. Bye um... Sorry about that. Um yes, Mahir Mohammed there from the uh Flemington Estate Residence Committee, uh talking about yeah. Communities getting organized to stop the sell off and uh, quasi privatization and literal privatization of public housing units and yeah pushing people out of public housing and into social housing with an erosion of uh, conditions
2: right, okay, so um we might have to pay quick announcement and then we'll move on to the activist calendar
0: all
1: right.
2: Like in Canada
0: and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing.
4: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
0: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does
1: not permit them also to kill people.
0: Who does the killing?
1: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call
4: 9419 8377.
0: You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM Digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call one 634 206 For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues.
2: Bop, bop, bop! All right. Um so now you're listening to Green Left Weekly or Green Left Radio um, oh, on the 855
1: AM
2: dot C- uh. And so now that's that time of the program where we talk activist calendar. So, uh, on so um today um there's going to be a uh, there's going to be a few public meetings, but I'm I'm unsure whether these these are all part of the Melbourne Writers Festival. So go on Melbourne MWF, I think, or search Melbourne Writers Festival on Google. Um, but there's going to be a public meeting on Hindu nationalism in India um, at two p.m. at the Acme Cinema, and also at the Acme Cinema. This is someone who I have a bit of an admiration for. I think he's probably one of the best. Commentators on the Middle East, um, Robert Fisk on the collapse of American power in the Middle East, um, and he will be speaking at 4 p.m. at the Acme Cinema then following that there'll be uh, a red cinema film screening um, red cinema presents no which is a film about um, chile in 1988 about the plebiscite that brought down the dictatorship um you know the, it was a basically there was a referendum vote on, uh, or a referendum or plebiscite on whether pinochet should serve for another 8 t- years um, and so that film is going to be um About that, and that starts at 6.30, meal from 6pm, and that's going to be at the Resistance Centre at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, and it's a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly. And just to be clear, ironically
1: or, or funnily enough, despite the film being called No, it will be demonstrating the potential power of the yes vote in the Equal Marriage Postal Survey.
2: Yeah, so um, on Saturday um, um, there, there will be, as I mentioned before, there will be a rally. Let them stay, make them welcome, bring them here. That's at twelve pm at the Parliament House, organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, on and then on on Thursday, I might just skip ahead because I think some of the events. Um, A bit (laughs) redundant. Um, On next Thursday, there'll be a symposium. Um, This is going to be about policing and the academy. Um, It's going to have a lot of different kind of academics who will be talking about kind of like... Issues around racial discrimination, um, police constructions of African criminality, um, and that'll be happening from 3 to 7.30pm at the North Lecture Theatre, Level 2 at the Old Arts Building at Melbourne University. Um, that sounds actually would be a, fanta- a really good event to go to, um, especially in light of a lot of the issues of you know racial profiling in the police, especially in the Flemington and Footscray communities. Hmm there'll be a big steps rally for equal pay at four p m at the state library yeah, uh, good stuff. and there'll be on that thursday there'll also be a fundraiser i can 't actually say what the title is um but it 's basically a fundraiser on you know you know on for this sort of you know, on harm reduction policies. The film is called F the War on Drugs. Yeah, it's not actually a film. It's actually just a gig. <laughs> oh, F the War on Drugs, the yeah. gig. Yeah. So that's going to be um, happening at 6pm um, at the Gasometer Hotel, 484 um, Smith Street in Collingwood. The Gaso. Um, also happening at the same time will be a public meeting, uh, 150 years since the publication of capital how relevant is marks a day um it'll feature a range of different speakers um so that should be an interesting event to go to um on saturday well f- all the way uh, from and that that uh, sorry that
1: public meeting about desk capital is at the new international bookshop at trades hall uh
2: so that's 54 victoria street and carton south on thursday september 7th okay so now happening on friday september the 8th um there'll be uh IPAN, actually the form is I don't know what the actual venue was again. Um, oh yeah, I have it here, I'll get it right here. Um, there is going to be uh, a public forum um, or as part of the IPAN National Conference. Um, that is going to be at 7pm at the Jasper Hotel Conference Centre, which is 4.8. 9 Elizabeth Street, and then on Saturday slash Sunday, there'll be the conference happening for at the MUA Victoria Branch Bean, which is 50, 46 to 54 Island Street in West Melbourne. Um, so, that, that has been kind of heavily promoted around FreeCR, cr So, um, and then on Sunday, there'll be a South East Victoria Rainbow Rally for Marriage Equality happening at 11am at Burke Park in Pakenham.
1: Pakenham, represent...
2: Yeah, and um, on Monday, September 11th, there'll be a film screening of I Am Not Your Negro, um, which is a um, will be at 6.30pm at the ACME at Federation Square in the city. Um, and then there'll be a Chile September 11th, 44 Years Tribute and Memory, 6.30pm at the Shreds Hall. Um So, yeah, there's a lot of different kind of events um, happening there. Um, and on Tuesday, September the 12th, um, this there'll be a forum hosted by social science from marriage equality to queer liberation. Um, it's kind of like I think a good way to summarise this is Andrew Bolt kind of said, made, wrote an article recently with the title, "It won't end with gay marriage." And I'm like, <laughs> you're, you're "Yes, damn right it won't." But yeah, it won't end with gay marriage. Like, yeah, it's just uh, um, that's just a fact. Like, once we win this kind of marriage equality, it will open up the space for all these other you know, um, struggles around um, for queer rights, and then we can go all the way to queer liberation, you know, full socialism, communism, whatsoever. <laughs> um, so the last kind of event I'll talk before going on to our next interview. Hang on, so
1: that's uh, Tuesday, September 12th. Yep. Where is
2: that uh, meeting oh, about oh, yeah, I forgot. from marriage equality to queer liberation? That's at the Resistance Centre at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Sorry oh, about yeah. the listeners. Um, cool. So entry by donation, um Okay, so also on Wednesday, the following day, September the 13th, there'll be a Student Day of Action for Marriage Equality at 2pm. Join the National Union students to take a stand against homophobia and transfer and show our support for marriage equality. That's going to be at the State Library at 2pm. Okay, uh, one other thing that I'm
1: keen to give a plug, which is a 3CR fundraiser, is the film Battle of the Sexes. Um, He made a bet. she made her story. Uh, not history, her story, uh, the story of Billie Jean King's nineteen seventy three victory over Bobby Riggs in the infamous tennis match, Battle of the Sexes. Uh, that's what this film is about. It's on Thursday, the fifth of October, six thirty PM ish. Exact time to be confirmed at the Palace Westgarth Cinemas in uh, eighty nine High Street Northcote. Tickets are twenty five dollars full price or twenty bucks concession. Uh, if you go to the 3CR website, uh, 3cr.org.au, you'll be able to see the link to purchase tickets. And that all benefits this here excellent radical radio station. So get along, see a rad film, and uh, support community radio in this town and across the land.
2: Mm. All right, so we'll just play a quick announcement while we get our next interview ready. <laughs>
3: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3 Our Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy.
2: Está sintonizando 3CR 855
3: Radio 3CR
4: 855 AM trên làn sóng AM 855. Kính
0: mời quý vị đón nghe. Watay cr AM. 3CR broadcasts over 130 programs in 25 languages, supporting communities and viewpoints that you just don't hear about anywhere else. Subscribe to your award-winning multilingual
1: community radio station, 3CR, and help keep these voices on the airwaves.
0: Call the station on 94198377. The number is again 94198377.
1: Boom, you are on 3CR. It is Friday morning. Uh, This is Greenleaf Radio. It is 11 minutes past eight. And on the phone line, we have got Lorraine from the Victorian Street Drug Solutions uh, group about the campaign for a safe injecting room in Richmond. Welcome, Lorraine.
4: Yeah, good morning, guys.
2: Yeah, so I guess the first question to ask is, can you give us a bit of background of the kind of politics of um, what's happening around this whole kind of campaign campaign?
4: Okay, well, we we are not a political group at all. We're a residents group. Um, uh, we formed about a year ago, uh, and it's called the Residents for Victoria Street Drug Solution with very much the emphasis on that. Um, we thought it was really important that there was a cohesive voice for residents in this whole debate because up until a year ago, there wasn't. Uh, and we're the ones who are living with the, the the consequences of the failure of of successive governments over the last 20 years to really address this this what is now a crisis in our in our backyards. Um, so uh, I, I'm you know not a great expert on the the politics of it as such, but as residents we just we face uh, such a crisis nearly every day that we come out of our our, our front. Doors Our back doors into our laneways, listening to sirens, coming across and starting to care about and look, for, look out for people who are overdosing or injecting regularly in our area, so whether that, if that's politi- pol- political then that 's who we are, but we 're a residence group. Hmm.
2: Um and so can you tell us about um the campaign um so what the particular demand you're demanding is for a safe injecting room um in Richmond is that um is that correct?
4: Oh absolutely we're we're a bit of a one one theme uh group at the moment because again looking at all the the various measures that successive governments have tr- tried and continue to put forward as being their 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 key response which is you know things like um, CCTV cameras or increased police presence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For 20 years, that hasn't worked. The situation hasn't improved; it's got worse, and more people are dying than ever from from overdoses. And these are preventable deaths. Uh, and all of the statistics from this, the the uh, medically supervised injecting centre in Sydney and all the ones around the world show that it's a better response. It, it's not a magic bullet. But it's a, or silver bullet, or whatever you'd like to call it. But it's it's a far better, far more humane response to what is now a crisis in Richmond North, um, North Richmond and Abbotsford.
2: Yeah, can you tell us a bit about um, kind of like the support that um, that this campaign has received, and how did the rally that um, was held Uh on Sunday went?
4: Okay, well, as I said, we we established formally about uh, 12 months ago and uh, gradually, uh, you know, increased our core group and we run monthly uh, community forums and that's about sort of attracting a broader base of support and importantly, a broader base of understanding around the issues of drug consumption and particularly a medically supervised injecting centre. In the lead-up to the rally, um, you know, two, two or three months out, we had a clear strategy, clear range of strategies uh, building up to it. A big part of that was we had a, a very extensive door-knocking campaign around the neighbourhood and beyond, over into Collingwood and East Melbourne and so forth. We had a huge number of volleys out, you know, for several weekends, knocking, giving out flyers, talking with our neighbours about who we are and what we want to do, and also busting a few myths about um, supervising injecting centres. Uh, and so all of that was the lead-up to the rally. In the week before the rally, uh, we had the, um, the wonderful, pa- powerful, profoundly beautiful um, bit of uh, wall art or street art revealed. Uh, it's, been get, it's got fairly wide coverage. I think most people would have seen it in the age or on television. It's You Talk, We Die um, and that was revealed a couple of a few days before the rally. It's a real kind of Philip to to get people's attention and get them motivated to turn up on Sunday. And on Sunday, despite the the extraordinarily uh, challenging weather, uh, we had a wonderful, really thrilling turn up. I'm conservative in my estimates, and I say about 500, and the police said about 750. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, we were wrapped. Really, really wrapped.
1: Yeah, that's
2: really impressive. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm disappointed I didn't get to make that rally because I kind of slept in.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if someone else asked us, you know, why I'd love to be there, but why nurse so early on a Sunday morning? And can I tell you, it was a very pragmatic decision. We had advice from um, people within the media who are very supportive of us, saying if you want to get journo's and media, do it early because otherwise, by the rest of the day, they're they're distracted with other things. And Mm. so it was quite a pragmatic reason why it was held at that time and it paid off yeah.
2: So yes. apparently um, there was a bit of a um, at the rally there was a bit of a counter-protest against yeah, the, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
4: Yeah well we we in planning our, um, our rally had gone through all the appropriate processes of working with council with the police, uh, Yarra Trams and got all the approvals etc and we had as I said all all the businesses along Victoria Street had been approached Probably a third of whom put up posters for us about the rally, which was a terrific show of support. Um, and then all of a sudden, last Friday, uh, in one of the local cafes here, that's a big supporter of ours, I said, "Hey, a guy just walked in and gave us this flyer, and it was a flyer about a counter protest. And the flyer was uh, um, put together by by a group of group of traders that, that is the uh, Richmond or the Victoria Street Traders Association." Who have um, who have long been supporters of the CCTV, more police uh, as a, as the response. They've long been an opponent to the idea of a medically supervised injecting centre. So they they uh, were the group that were counter protesting, I guess, and they've got every right to do so. There was a very small group, about you know fifteen people, but they were vocal. And what was it, what was really f- interesting for me to hear, and I've lived in this area on and off for about 25 years in four different locations. So I'm not a newbie who's just suddenly got outraged. Uh, I'm someone who, who is invested in this community. Uh, so I was very excited to hear that they actually were saying, we're not against an stick. we just don't want it on Victoria Street. <laughs> so that means we actually want the same thing, hmm. you know? So that means we can do some negotiations. But... But actually, really, in the end, we're not going to be determining where it is. That's not our responsibility. It's not our expertise. We're we're residents. We're just saying there needs to be one uh, in in this vicinity, in the so-called epicentre. So, you know, maybe there's, there's now a common ground between the residents and the Traders Association. Mm. But as I said, uh, at least a third, or about a third of the traders along um, the businesses along Victoria Street, happily put up our rally posters in their uh, mm. windows. So there's a growing number who are supporting this because their businesses are suffering, their livelihood is suffering, and that's very evident. Um, because it's horrific what's going on around around that intersection of Victoria Street and Lennox and, and Nicholson.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it sounds like you've got quite a strategic approach in terms of building those alliances with small businesses along there and and also a strategic approach to media, which is uh, refreshing to see.
4: Yeah, well, we've got some good people who sit around the table at the executive meetings. And as I said, we're all residents, but we have got some good good professionals as a just a lucky coincidence. But going back to the alliances, I'd like to really acknowledge the, the crossover between groups like the Students for Sensible Drug Policy, Ashen, all those guys, once yeah. we cross paths, you know we've just, you know, connected so strongly and are so supportive of each other and we, we work with each other quite a lot. Um, Fiona Patton from the, what was the sex party now, the reason party, you know, the Greens, they've all been really fantastically on board. The the gaping hole, the elephant in the room is any kind of response, let alone support, from either of the major state parties.
1: Hmm. And uh, have you sort of had... Uh I don't know, fundraisers or meetings or anything yeah. where you've looked at decriminalisation? Like, I know it's probably outside of the scope of your campaign, but is that something that's come up in discussion, looking at Portugal or other examples like that?
4: Well, we've certainly looked at, you know, as just for our own information and gaining, we've looked at the various models. Um, but, you know, for us, it's just like... I don't mean baby steps in that sense, but because an M six seems to be some ginormous step for our state government, mm. uh, unfathomable as that is. Uh, but we reckon you get the first thing happening, mm. and when people realise that the sky's not going to fall in, and in fact hell, my my whole neighbourhood's just been trans- well been transformed, and the and the lives of people are being saved, which means there's a chance for rehabilitation. You know, we get that done, and then the next step will be you know, the next step, the next step, the next step, you know. Um, I think sometimes campaigns can fail by trying to do it all or try, you know, aim to achieve it all and that's sometimes just a step too far for the middle ground of population. So you do one thing, you can do that, have it achieve the results that make people feel more comfortable and confident and then the next big step doesn't seem so scary.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think it's... um it seems to be a strategic thing to inform your approach where you are treating this primarily as a, a health issue and yeah, a social absolutely. issue, not as a um, law and order issue, as you say.
4: Yeah, I agree. And I think the big issue, the big change too is that for, for the first time, as I said, there's a cohesive residence group, but who are actually not typically, or not as is typically the case, saying, not in my backyard, you know, we're actually saying... Well, what's happening in our backyard now is appalling and it's unreasonable that, uh, w- that anyone, anywhere, should have to, you know, experience this on a daily basis. And it's, it's unacceptable that, that people die in, in horrific circles, in horrible laneways, um, in, in what supposedly is the world's most livable city. It seems somewhat ironic to me mm. and cruel that it's allowed to continue.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think what's um what's I think particularly interesting um the fact that this is a campaign being headed by residents because mm. uh, as someone who's who follows um discussions on drug policy, a lot of you know governments actually kind of always like to sort of use the excuse of of against legalizing drugs or even putting um considering to say demand around a safe injection room on the basis that you know. They try to always sometimes use residents who live mm. in the area as, like, the source of opposition to it. That's right, yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's very refreshing, you know, just a comment here, to re- refreshing to kind of hear mm. that this campaign is actually being led by actual residents who are clearly being impacted um, by, you know, the government's kind of failed kind of policy of criminalising illicit mm. drugs and um, not putting forward any solutions that actually addresses any, um, the actual um, problem.
4: Exactly right. And look, uh, going back to the, the level of support from, from the broad base of residents beyond our, our core group, as I said, we've undertaken extensive door knocking over over several months and then more more intensely in the last two weekends leading up to the rally. Um, we, we gave out something like 6,000 little um, postcard flyers specific about the rally, DL flyers, about the mist busting around M6. And... I could, I could count on my hand the number of people who were doggedly opposed to the idea, no matter what argument we presented them, because I always have my alternate argument. If people aren't going to be, don't have a humanity and a compassion about it, I then flip over to the economic argument about reducing ambulance call outs and, and reducing police call outs, etc., etc. So I could count on my hand, literally. The people that were doggedly opposed to um, the idea of of a trial of a medically supervised injecting center in in north Richmond Abbotsford, mm. which is pretty remarkable um, and it's residents are voters you know <laughs> and there's a state election coming up in about a year's time, and you know if politicians don't want to listen to the voices of their constituents then it will it'll Come at, come against them at election time is all I can say
1: mm. yeah it's quite revealing isn't it when you get out there and door knock uh, mm. a how you can build support for your group but b the the quite enormous difference between what appears on the front page of the Herald Sun versus what actual people think
4: yeah yeah, absolutely look I have to say we've been you know we've been also really pleased that the media sources, such as the Herald Sun and, and 3AW, even uh, have actually been very open and chasing us for for articles and interviews and stories. Uh, and by and large, they've been very. The, the result has been very, you know, some, sometimes a little guarded, but overwhelmingly supportive mm. of this idea. Because again, everyone—it's common sense. The evidence is there. And why spend more money on what hasn't worked for 20 years? Hmm. It's I, just not logical.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, we're running a bit low on time. Um, so the last kind of question I want to ask is, you know, kind of what are the next steps for the campaign and how can people follow what you're doing or even get involved? Because we probably have a number of listeners that live in this particular area, especially since this radio station's in the kind of vicinity of... Yeah, Richard. yeah.
4: Well, we, as I said, we run community forums on a monthly basis. The next one is um, next Thursday. Um, the best way to get in touch with all of our info and updates is through the Facebook. Um, so just uh, you know, Google Residents for Victoria Street Drug Solution and it'll all come up. Um, but in terms of next strategies, there's a couple of big milestones coming up that are a bit, you know, not our instigation, but we're going to be working our strategies around that, which is the... the re- parliamentary report uh, in response to Fiona Patton's bill is being handed down uh, next week, I believe. And then government has up to three months in which to respond to that. And uh, we will be setting up some specific activities around that time frame between the report being handed down and the government's response to keep it in their faces, to keep the human stories and to keep the, the practicalities of of living in this area. But... We want anyone to come to our rallies or to our forums. It's not just a Richmond and Abbotsford issue. We're, we're, we're at the pointy end of it. But two-thirds of people who've died from overdoses in this area come from outside the city of Yarra. Mm. They come from regional Victoria. They come from, from Dandenong. They come from wherever. Mm. It's not an issue that's just about the people who live here. As I said, we're at the pointy end dealing with the outcomes, but it's an issue for anyone. It it, it could be someone else's son, someone else's brother, uh, daughter, sister, who's coming here to get their drugs, shooting up in a horrid little laneway, passing out and overdosing and dying.
2: Yeah, Mm. Unfortunately, we've got to cut you off there because um, the next program wants to get in and start their program.
4: Oh, outrageous. I could talk (laughs) for hours.
2: All right. Well, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you Uh, very much.
4: uh, Thanks, Zane and Jacob.
2: Cheers. Uh...
1: Yes, Lorraine there from Residence for Victoria Street Drug Solutions talking about the campaign for a safe injecting room in uh, in Richmond. All right, stick around because Beyond Zero Emissions are coming up next. Uh, thanks for tuning in. You're on 3CR. We have been Greenleaf Radio for another Friday Breakfast.
0: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Greenleaf Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into to 3CR Community Radio, 855 digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.